Good morning, church family. As we begin, will you pray with me one more time? Our Father in heaven, we come before you, and we would invite you to speak. We recognize that we need to hear from you. And we thank you that you have given us your word so that we can hear from you. And we pray now that by the power of your spirit, as we look at your word, that you would use it to instruct us, to guide us, to encourage us. Lord, I thank you that you know exactly what each one of us need. You know the things that we brought with us into this space this morning. You know the cares, you know the concerns, you know what's heavy on our heart. And Lord, I thank you that you're a God who cares. I pray that, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would still our hearts and that you would quiet our minds so that we would be able to receive from you what you would want to give us. And we pray this in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, once again, good morning, church family. It's uh, so good to, to look out and see all of you. You lost an hour of sleep, you still made it to the early service, and I don't see anyone in their PJs, so well done. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Andrew Wald. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And for those of you that happen to be worshiping with us for the very first time, uh, whether that's right here in the sanctuary or online, I want to extend to you a, a special welcome. And I hope you will take a moment to fill out that Hey, I'm Here card that you will find in the bulletin or online on our website. I, I just as a complete aside, I do want to mention that uh, Joseph Hunter, who was right here leading worship, if he seemed to have a little bit more of the joy of the Lord with him this morning, um, you're not off. That might have had something to do with the basketball game last night. You, you did see his Marine shirt. He is a graduate of Virginia Tech. And uh, not only the first time the Virginia Tech was in the ACC final, but they won. So uh, if you see Joseph, he's pretty excited today. There's some other Hokies around here too, I guess. Well, um, th this, this spring, we've begun a study of Luke's gospel. Luke provides a, a rich picture of a life and ministry of Jesus, similar to the way that you might take a diamond in your hand and you would turn it and look at it to appreciate its beauty. We have the four gospels, and each of them, as we look at them, they shed unique light on Jesus that allows us to gain a fuller picture of who he is. And if you have a Bible with you this morning, I'll invite you to turn with me to the passage Maddie just read for us, which can be found in Luke 6. This morning, we'll focus in on two episodes from Jesus' life. And these episodes are similar in that they both draw attention to the rising opposition that Jesus encountered from the religious leaders of his day. At the end of the previous chapter, chapter 5, we see Jesus' first controversy with the Pharisees over a question about fasting. And now as we move into chapter 6, we'll see two more controversies that occur between Jesus and the Pharisees. And they are, are both related because they concern the Sabbath. We're told in verse 1 that on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, the disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, now what do you think? Are the Pharisees asking this because they have genuine curiosity? 
Are they just being inquisitive here? Is this intellectual curiosity on their part? No. The Pharisees are trying to take Jesus and his disciples to task. And it's worth noting that the Pharisees, they don't accuse Jesus of stealing. It's because the Old Testament instructed that when you were to to, to harvest your fields, you were to leave the edges. Uh, the, the, the grain that was on the edges of one's field, those were to be left for the poor and the sojourner. So what the disciples were doing here, uh, picking the grain, that was not the problem. The issue for the Pharisees was that the disciples did this on the Sabbath. And according to their oral tradition, one couldn't reap, one couldn't winnow, one couldn't thresh, one couldn't prepare food on the Sabbath because that would constitute work. And in their estimation, the disciples were doing work by picking the heads of grain and rubbing them in their hands and having a bite to eat. Now, I want us to see how Jesus responds. If there were smartphones back then, and Jesus' mother Mary was to text him later that day and say, hey, how did things go with the Pharisees today? What emoji might Jesus have responded with? I'm going eye roll emoji all the way. I, I, I say that because when you, when you look at verse 3, you see that Jesus is not having it from the way he responds. Just check this out. And Jesus answered them, have you not read? As is often the case, he answers a question with a counter question, but he words it in a way that suggests a, a subtle rebuke. He's talking to a group of people who prided themselves on the knowledge of their knowledge of the scriptures. And he says, like, surely you've read, have you not? In other words, if, 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 if you all really knew the scriptures, you, you wouldn't even need to ask this question. I mean, there's a bit of a dig here. And then Jesus goes on to follow the rabbinic precedent of appealing to scripture to settle a controversy. He says... Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? This is an incident in the life of David when he was on the run from King Saul. It's recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21 if you want to go back and look it up later. So in hunger and desperation, David enters the tabernacle. And the bread in question, the bread of the presence, refers to the 12 loaves that were baked and they were placed on a table in the holy place every Sabbath. And this bread also provided food for the priests. They were the only ones who were supposed to eat it. Yet this was the only food available. And and David and his men, uh, they aren't being flippant. They aren't being cavalier with with God's word. They aren't flaunting God's law. They eat this bread because they have genuine hunger, and they need calories if they're going to continue to stay on the move, and they're going to evade King Saul. Now, there are two layers to this response. In referring to this incident from David's life, Jesus does answer the Pharisees' basic question. Jesus is making the point that the law was never intended to be interpreted so literally, that compassion should just be cast aside when basic needs are at stake. 
He's saying that there's, there's no regulation that outweighs the, the fundamental needs of human life. And in making this point, Jesus is teaching as one with authority. He's saying, Pharisees, l- l- let me show you how we should rightly interpret Scripture. You think this would have upset the Pharisees? You bet. But the Pharisees are left with a decision to make, right? If they, if they want to condemn Jesus and his disciples, then they had also be ready, be ready to condemn who? David and his men. And that, by the way, is something that the Old Testament scriptures do not do. But there's a second layer to this response as well. Jesus is inviting a comparison between himself and King David. So when David ate this bread with his men, he had already been anointed by the prophet Samuel as the future king of Israel, but his coronation was still a future event. David wasn't seated on the throne. David wasn't reigning at this point. And Jesus, I think, is saying, just just suggesting, just inviting this thought that there are some parallels between David and his men, and Jesus is saying, between me and my disciples. Jesus is comparing himself with Israel's messianic prototype. And then there was that promise, that great promise, that a future descendant of David would reign forever on his throne. And I think Jesus could have just stopped right here with his response. He's given the Pharisees enough to justify their actions, but he goes a step further. And it's really important to wrap our minds around what happens next because there are, there are people out there who, who would want to insinuate that Jesus never claimed identity, uh, deity for himself. That this was something that his, his followers did after he, he died. And, and, and this idea has sort of worked its way into mainstream culture through popular writers like Dan Brown, the author of The Da Vinci Code, The idea that they would put forward is that there's really two different people. There is the Jesus of history, who was an actual person, and then there's the Christ of the Christian faith, who's sort of a myth-like figure. He's a legend. And the way this got created was was through the embellishment of stories about Jesus that his followers just kind of kept telling and retelling uh, over those first few centuries. But I want you to look with me at what Jesus says in verse 5. Look at the claim that Jesus makes for himself. And he said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This this controversy between Jesus and the Pharisees over the Sabbath, it reminds me of an event from the life of Alexander Hamilton. Perhaps some of you are familiar with Hamilton now, thanks to the musical. Okay, a couple folks have seen the musical uh, very, very slowly, I am working my way through that 730-page biography that inspired the musical, and I've enjoyed um, the refresher in American history and learning a little bit about Hamilton. But if you recall, after the Revolutionary War came to the close, the, the 13 colonies were bound together by the Articles of Confederation. It was a rather weak document, and it became apparent that the, the Confederation had its problems uh, because each state was completely independent. And you can imagine the, the complexities of something like interstate trade when each state 
had its own exchange rates, and there was no central currency. And so Hamilton knew that in order for the United States to really thrive, that there needed to be a stronger union. There needed to be a central government that could have the ability to do things like regulate commerce. And Hamilton was instrumental in orchestrating that constitutional convention of 1787. Uh, he served as a delegate there, and his thoughts really helped shape the Constitution that we have today. And in order to help get the Constitution ratified, Hamilton and two other guys, James Madison and John Jay, they wrote the Federalist Papers. Uh, it was a collection of 85 essays. Hamilton did the lion's share of the work. He wrote 51 of those, and they served to really explain the Constitution and to lay out how it was supposed to work. Now let's fast forward just a few years. France declares war on England and Spain, and France wants to get our new nation uh, roped into the conflict on their side, but uh, our country decided that it was best to remain neutral. Well, uh, France decided to send over a, a diplomat by the name of Citizen Gannett, and the short version is, is that Citizen Gannett showed a blatant disregard for our commander-in-chief, President George Washington, and his policies and our country's stance on neutrality. And Hamilton and Gannett got sideways over this. And Gannett, trying to defend his position, he had the gall to attempt to kind of give Hamilton a lesson in U.S. civics. He, he said, um, Hamilton, you know, like I'm pretty much every bit in the right because what's going on here is that the commander-in-chief, President George Washington, has overstepped his bounds and he is usurping congressional prerogatives. Now, who do you think knew more about how the branches of the U.S. government should work? A guy from France who's been in our country for all of a year, or, or the guy that helped hammer out the U.S. Constitution and wrote the Federalist Papers? Which one's going to know more? It's Hamilton, right? He, he's the one with the authority to talk about how the government should function. Well, for a very similar reason, Jesus is the one who has authority to provide binding commentary on the Sabbath. When he says that, that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he's claiming two titles for himself. That first one, Son of Man, uh, Pastor David did a wonderful job uh, explaining the significance of this title last week, but by way of a refresher, I'll simply mention that when you go to, to Daniel 7, the Son of Man is an exalted figure who's given the power to rule and to reign in the name of God. And after adopting this self-designation, Jesus goes on to assert that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Lord. I mean, that, that's a pretty strong word. And the magnitude of this claim would not have been lost on the Pharisees. I mean, many of us know that the Sabbath is part of the Ten Commandments, right? But was the Sabbath instituted by Moses? No, it goes even further back. It goes all the way back to Genesis. The Sabbath was established by God in his original work. And so this is like, like Citizen Gannett sort of trying to challenge Hamilton on the Constitution. Here we see the Pharisees trying to question the one who consecrated the seventh day. About his, they're questioning him about his behavior on that day. 
And Jesus, rather than just letting them mull over the significance of David and his men eating the bread of presence, he goes a step further and he asserts absolute authority over the Sabbath. And Luke intends for us to consider this event alongside a second controversy. Beginning in verse 6, he writes this, on another Sabbath, and it's just, it's that expression right there that really ties these two accounts together. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now, this account is also recorded for us in Matthew and in Mark's gospel, but Luke alone specifies that it's the man's right hand that was withered. I I can't help but wonder if Luke, who set out to investigate all things carefully and to give us this orderly account, I, I can't help but wonder if he was especially inquisitive as he inquired about this man's condition because of his background as a as a doctor. Uh, It's the kind of detail that you would only add if indeed you had investigated all things very carefully. And the text tells us that when Jesus entered the synagogue, the, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. That Greek word for watch actually has a connotation of scrutinize. So they are surveilling Jesus. They're spying on him. They're giving him the side eye. Their watching is not impartial. Their motives are malignant. They're sinister. They are looking for a reason to accuse him. And I love how Jesus responds. Before I became a pastor, I was in the army. And and one of the things they teach you at the uh, infantry officer basic course is you you learn a bunch of these battle drills, sort of things that just become muscle memory, like uh, how to knock out a bunker, how to enter and clear a trench, how to react to a near ambush. Uh, Maybe some of you were in the service and you remember how to react to a near ambush. If you find yourself in a near ambush, what they teach you is, is that you don't withdraw, you don't break contact, you don't bound back. Actually, what you wanna do is you wanna assault through the ambush. You want to move on top of the enemy as much as you can. You, you, you want to assault towards them. And we see Jesus doing something here. Rather than bounding back, he, he, he moves closer. Jesus could have evaded this trap, couldn't he have? He could have had one of his disciples slip the man with a withered hand a note like, hey, you know, meet us at Hezekiah's grocery in, in an hour. I mean, he he, he could have just like quickly healed him and then slipped out the side door, couldn't he have? These were options. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to make a point here. And in verse 8, we see this. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. You can picture what this must have been like. The sidebar conversations in the back, they suddenly grew grew silent. The kids doodling on the bulletin, that stopped. Nobody's checking the watch. Nobody's daydreaming about their lunch plans. Every eye in that room 
is riveted on Jesus. And the people in that room who didn't like conflict, they probably wanted to be like that Homer Simpson gif where he just sort of, you know, melts back into the bushes. Because there, 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 there's tension in that room, isn't there? I mean, thing, things didn't just get awkward. They got confrontational. All right, we, we've, we've seen enough of good Homer. <laughs> but Jesus breaks the silence. Look with me at verse 9. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Although the Pharisees never articulated it, Jesus is very much responding to a question again. He knows their thoughts. And just like he does previously, he responds with a counter question. He says it essentially comes down to this. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? You know what's interesting? Jesus doesn't ask, is it, is, is it, you know, is, is it doing good or doing nothing? Does he? That's not an option. He says it, it, it's, it's doing good or doing harm. Or if you have the NIV open in your lap, uh, doing evil. This is if Jesus is saying, you know, failure to do good when it's in your power, well, that would contribute to harm. When, when good needs to be done, there is no such thing as a neutral position. And Jesus really elevates the question here. I think the one that the Pharisees are asking, is it, is it, is it lawful? Is it permissible? And Jesus says, no, no, no. The question is, is it the right thing to do? And after being met with silence, Jesus goes on to make it abundantly clear where he comes down on this issue. He wants to do good. He wants to save life. He is all about restoration and healing and giving wholeness to mankind, restoring all of our faculties. And, th and there's a touch of satire in how this healing takes place. How much work is done by Jesus? Does he have to prep the OR? Does he have to roll up his sleeves and start fishing through his medical bag for the right instruments? Does he have to start mixing ointments? No. He just speaks a word. And in doing so, he, he displays his authority once again. And at the same time, his goodness, his compassion, his kindness. And for those of us who are followers, let just, just, just let this sink in for a moment. This is what our Savior is like. He delights in doing good. And you might say, I don't know. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to believe that's true right now. Because I've, I've, I've prayed about this pain in my life. I've, I've even asked my small group to pray with me. I've, I've asked some godly family members to pray. And, and the pain is still there. 
And, and I don't know if I have a fully satisfactory answer for you. But I think one of the things that helps me is what Pastor David shared last week about the purpose of Jesus' miracles. Sometimes Jesus did a miracle to authenticate his claims, to, to validate his identity. We, has, we saw this last week, for instance, in chapter 5. There was the paralytic man, and Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. But the, the, the physical healing that followed, the, the miracle that came after that, where the man was told to, to, to take up his mat and to rise, what that served to do was authenticate, to validate that Jesus really did have the authority to forgive sins. But David also mentioned that one of the purposes of, of Jesus' coming and the miracles was, was to make God known, to reveal to us what God is like. And Jesus not only reveals to us what, what God is like, but also what life with God will be like in eternity. If you've ever been to the cinema, you know that before you actually get to view the movie, you watch the previews, right? And what are the previews? It's a little sneak peek of a, of a soon-to-be-released film and you get a taste for what that film is going to be like because they just expose you to little snippets or little clips of that film. And that's partly what we see Jesus doing with the miracles that he performed when he was on this earth. We're given a snippet. We're given a sneak preview of what life will be like when the rule and reign of Jesus are fully established. One of my favorite passages of scripture in recent years is Revelation 21. In the book of Revelation, it's the Apostle John who is given this vision of the future. And he says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. As Jesus walked this earth, he proved that these aren't just pie-in-the-sky promises. He validated through his miracles that, that this is indeed what the people of God have to look forward to. He saw the mourning. He saw the crying. He saw the pain. He saw the withered hand. And what happened? we see little glimpses of the kingdom breaking through. He makes things new. He restores and he heals. And I, and, and I point this out because in some ways all of us are like the man with the withered hand, aren't we? I mean, we, we might not have a deformed appendage per se, but do any of us really navigate this life without escaping the scars that come from pain and grief and sorrow and loss? No. 
And it might be that right now that there is a physical pain that is affecting you. It might be that your routine exam this past year wasn't so routine. It might be that you have a loved one who is really struggling right now with some serious health challenges. It might be that you have some wounds from a previous relationship with a parent or an ex. Or maybe you've been just plagued by a particular struggle. You're not sure why. You feel afflicted with depression or anger or anxiety. And and try as you might, those thoughts won't go away. I think all of us have our withered hand. It it, it might not necessarily be visible, but those things that we know just just about us that we, we sense in our psyche that it's just not right. And and could it be that the scribes and the Pharisees have something to teach us about Jesus? They, They see this man with the withered hand, and then they see Jesus coming, and what conclusion do the scribes and the Pharisees come to? They say, we better watch Jesus closely, because he's gonna wanna do something about this. He's going to see this man's suffering. He's going to see this man's predicament. He's going to sense this man's pain. And he's going to be so moved, he's going to want to bring healing. They have figured out Jesus' MO. They know what our Savior's like. They know that when there's pain, that he is full of empathy. And Jesus says, you're right. Jesus says, you have me pegged. That's exactly what I want to do. I'm here to do good, and I've got the authority to do it. And I don't know about you, but this just makes me want to exclaim with the old hymn, what a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear, what a privilege to carry. Everything to God in prayer. There there, there is no king on this earth that has this kind of authority and has this kind of power. And there's no counselor, there's no friend, there's no parent that has this kind of compassion. And when you take these two attributes of Jesus and and you consider them together, his authority and his compassion, his goodness, that means that is good news for us as his people. Jesus says, is it, Is it better to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to destroy it? And we see how he answers that question. And ironically, what we see is that the Pharisees do the exact opposite on the Sabbath. In response to Jesus performing this miracle, we're told, how does the the little verse 11 end? That they go and they discuss what they might do to Jesus, how they might harm him. And we know that this ultimately culminates in a plan to destroy his life. Jesus' compassion to the man with the withered hand, it's free to that man, but it's costly to himself. And And this is true for us as well. The blessings that Jesus would want to give us are because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we can be the recipient of his great blessings 
We can receive the forgiveness of sins. We can have our, our relationship. We can have fellowship restored with God Almighty. We can have the promise of one day being made completely whole and enjoying God's presence for all eternity. But in order to receive these blessings, we know we have to receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Jesus says to, to, it says in John 1.12, to, to all who've received him, to those who've believed in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. And if you have never received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, today can be the day that you do that. I'm just going to invite us all right now just to bow our head and to close our eyes. Lord, as we consider your word, we want to come before you just expressing thanks right now. Lord, I know this is a reminder I needed in my own life, and I can't help but think that you wanted to extend this reminder to some of your people as well. We confess that there are times that we do question your goodness. And we thank you for revealing this picture of, your, of yourself and reminding us of what you're like, of your authority and where your heart is and what you want to do for your people and what we have to look forward to. Lord, minister to this to us. Cause it to sink down deep in our hearts so that we would experience the blessed assurance of your comfort and of your love. And Lord, for the person here who doesn't have the same hope that we do as your people because they have yet to accept Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Lord, I know what you want for them. And if that's you, and you know that Jesus is wanting to draw you close, I would invite you to respond to that, to invite him into your life, to make the decision right now to put him on the throne, to take your hands off the wheel and to give it to him. And you can do that just by saying a prayer like this. You can say, God, I thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus, to be my savior. I know that that I have tried to live independently of you. And I recognize my sin. And I thank you that Jesus would come and he would bear the penalty for my sins so that I could be wrapped in his perfect righteousness and be completely restored to you. I embrace him as my Savior and Lord. And I thank you for filling me with your spirit so that I can now go and live for you all of my days. And all of God's people said, amen, amen.